you know, I think as the economics of beef production, it's all right when interest rates are low and beef prices are high, but when it swaps back the other way, the carbon and the forestry are going to come much more relevant. The other mindset shift in regards to timber was also a significant one for us. So we saw how about we let them grow and we let them do their natural thing, which is basically let those mature trees come up and suppress the regrowth. And there is very good returns. You just got to be dedicated to undertaking the management practices that will deliver those returns. Hi, I'm Ellie. And I'm Susie. You're listening to Soils for Life. Each episode, we're bringing you stories about soil the opportunities in the ground and the challenges above it. So what's the opportunity we're exploring in this episode? Well, Susie, trees are an integral part of our natural landscape and on farms they provide so many benefits above and below the ground. We're going to explore what the opportunity is for farmers to diversify their income, build their resilience and repair their landscapes with trees on farms. But forestry tends to fit into two camps, conservation or production, which makes it really tricky But what we have found is there's plenty of opportunity to achieve both outcomes at the same time. Yeah, and one farmer doing this is James Henderson. His story was featured in a Soils for Life case study earlier this year, and it was a drought that forced him to rethink his farming operation and diversify. James and Kylie Henderson were on Culloden, which is about 250 kilometres west of Bundaberg in the North Burnett. 4,600 hectares here of open eucalypt woodland. Blue gum and rough bark apple flats rising to narrowleaf and ironbark ridges. We run about uh, 1,000 head of cattle, which is about 600 head breeder operation of money uh, Santa Gertrudis cattle. So I'm fourth generation on this property. We've got three small kids that maybe one of them might want to take it on, but we'll just have to see. It was definitely the Millennium Drought that was you know, a big eye-opener for us. You know, a quick drive around and you could see that the system was breaking down and we needed some new answers to go forward. There was trees dying where they shouldn't be drying, there was erosion where there shouldn't be erosion. The, the grasses, the composition of the native pasture was changing and obviously the, the financial side of it too was, was pretty telling. The combination of those factors and the realisation that we, we just couldn't keep doing the same thing expecting a different answer, we knew we had to change. So a shift in mindset and seeing what others were doing led the Hendersons to change their management practices, introducing rotational grazing of smaller mobs to maintain ground cover and looking beyond their grazing operation to tree growing. And the health of the farm improved significantly. James has sold saw logs for general construction and railway sleepers and has ventured into two forestry carbon projects a human-induced regeneration project and an avoided clearing project. The other mindset shift in regards to timber was also uh, a significant one for us. So, you know, looking at these regrowth going, well, it's not a problem, it's an opportunity, you know, rather than spending $100 a hectare treating it and trying to keep it open, trying to battle the trees. We thought, how about we let them grow and we let them do their natural thing, which is basically let those mature trees come up and suppress the regrowth and you know then the opportunity that comes around that of a well-managed forest the, the the dollar value return it's a long-term investment you know you've got to be thinking 25 30 years but there is very good returns you just got to be dedicated to undertaking the management practices that you know will deliver those returns 
it is nice to know that you know you've got well i think we're up to about 16 mammals on farm so it's more than some national parks you know so it's about having that very sustainable operation that's not at the whim of a, of a market crash or a, a big drought if it's a sustainable healthy environment well obviously the, the business side's going to flow so you don't see the rewards always on your balance sheet. Sometimes you'll see the rewards in quick responding pasture or in biodiversity, or you know, if you see that animal there, you know the system's healthy. James went from removing trees on his farm to embracing the opportunities that trees provide, including the ecosystem services, but also their financial value. But he wasn't alone. Peter Kanowski is a professor of forestry at ANU Fenner School of Environment and Society and he explains how as a nation in under a century we went from removing as many trees as possible to wanting to plant them back. One of the great tragedies of Australian rural land use is this historical conflict between forestry and farming and that reflects our pre-federation and post-federation history where the development of Australia was very much focused on the expansion of farming. We only have to look back to the 1930s, for example, in North Queensland. Royal Commission concluded that the productive wealth of the country suffers from too many rather than too few trees. Trees have been seen as a barrier to economic development rather than as an integral part of sustainable economic development. And so it's that way of thinking that's quite deeply embedded, I think, in our colonial heritage that I think we need to change. Of course, there are many farmers who recognise the need for that change. One of the farmers who's challenging that entrenched view that you're either a farmer or a forester is forest scientist and grazier Rowan Reid. In 2017, he wrote a book called Heartwood about the art and the science of growing trees. And in the book, he shares his story of how he manages his property as a farm and a forest. He also challenges the idea that when you grow trees, you have to be either a conservationist or a profiteer. It's sort of identity politics. People call themselves a conservationist or they think of themselves as a a commercial producer. And by doing so, they don't want to be seen to be doing anything that the other extreme might support. Most farmers, we're in the middle. We're trying to produce an income from a landscape that we want conservation outcomes. And we also know as landholders with you know, just experience on the land that cutting down a tree for timber can actually be good for the environment. And that's why I've been on this sort of campaign about trees for conservation and profit. Because if you don't see that there's a potential to marry those two, you're actually ignoring the space between these two extremes where there's going to be more activity, more enthusiasm, more reward for all of us than at those just trying to get people on board to, in, to plant indigenous forests or only plant industrial pot scale pine plantations. We all know that a compromise at each end would be better for the landholders who want to engage in tree growing, but everything being offered to them is high risk or cost too much. So we've got to start grabbing that opportunity between those extremes. And uh, I reckon that farmers are the only people who are going to talk about it because all the stakeholder groups, you know, the conservation groups, their membership comes from people who can't believe you cut a tree down. It'd be good for the environment. Imagine if the Wilderness Society went out and said, actually, in some cases, uh, we should be harvesting trees from our national parks because they're overstocked with some species and they're understocked with others. 
well, we need a physical disturbance in our conservation areas. They'd be laughed off. Their membership won't support that. Rowan's saying that there is a space between these two polarising views, which, by the way, are reflected in government policy too. And as a forester among farmers, Rowan's opened up his property to show other farmers what that middle ground looks like. It's setting up this property. You know, we've had ten or 12,000 people visit the property. I have not got a patch which has just planted local Indigenous fenced out, and I do not have a monoculture plantation that's managed only for timber. Because that's what people expect to see when they go to look at tree growing. I show them mixtures of species, irregular configurations, exotics, natives, non-Indigenous species from the tropics, uh, all sorts of things grown in lots of different ways, and just say to them, forestry can be anything you want it to be. So we need landholders to stand up and tell a story about how their active management of the landscape has encouraged bird species, improved biodiversity, locked up more carbon in the landscape, got more fungal activity, everything that people want to see, and it's not what they imagined that forest to look like. Don't think of it as just a conservation planting or just a timber plantation. If you don't want to do that, you don't have to. But you've got this opportunity to do this, all these other things. Don't copy what I do. Just imagine for yourself what might be possible. So how do we think differently about our production systems? Perhaps it's not about thinking of ourselves as farmers or foresters, but as landscape managers. For Rowan, when thinking about landscape management, regenerating the land is his priority. So before you even start thinking of selling a product to a third person, farmers should think about what they need on their property and then meet those requirements because they are the market, they're guaranteed getting a reward that way. If you need shelter to improve your agricultural production, or if the risk of storms and heat and uh, cold weather are one of your agricultural threats or your business threats, if you can plant trees to reduce that risk, then you are the market. Another one might be soil conservation. If you can stop the degradation on your land, you actually retain capital value and you stop degradation, loss of soil and nutrients from the land, and you are the market again. I love that because people come here who have a conservation mindset, and I can show them rotting stumps that are actually providing nutrients and moisture to support rainforest trees through droughts right next to them. I can show them dead wood that are from trees that I've cut down. I put it in the waterway because we don't have beavers. I can use that dead wood to slow the flow of the water and catch debris to create these ponds. I can show them how by cutting down one tree, I'm actually supporting the understory because it can thrive in the space where it was being suppressed. The analogy I use is anyone who's travelled to developing countries might have seen little kids rolling bicycle wheels down the hill and tapping it with a stick. And I say, well, the game is not to stand at the top of the hill, plant your trees, throw your wheel down and laugh because it went over there or went over there. It will never go to the same spot twice. Our landscape has been managed for thousands of years and now we're acknowledging cultural burning. We're acknowledging that influencing the active burning or activity or management by man can actually deliver higher conservation outcomes, more biodiversity. If you take that analogy, then maybe a bulldozer can do the same thing or a chainsaw can do the same thing. We just have to work out and understand those natural processes, gravity rolling that wheel down the hill, and then we need to tap it. Not too hard, not bang the wheel hard with a you know, clear fell the whole area. 
just manipulate it, tinker with the forest as it grows, so it goes into the direction that delivers the greatest biodiversity, greatest carbon, greatest conservation benefits, but in doing so also provides some of the income and support that underpins it. It's pretty clear listening to Rowan that trees offer multiple benefits, but the key is managing them for these multiple benefits. Yeah, and we spoke to Chris Brack, Honorary Associate Professor of Forestry, who says that the most important thing when thinking about managing a forest is to know what you want to achieve. The best thing to do, though, is to know what you want your trees to do. So the professionals can come in and say, well, if you want to grow saw logs, this is what you do. But if you come in and you say, well, I might want to do saw logs, but that's 20, 30, 40 years into the future. In the meantime... I wanted to do these other things. And the better your farmer has a picture of what he's expecting or wanting from the forest, the more easy it is is to to generate that silvicultural management regime for them. And that's the thing, the one tree can do all that. One of the things that people don't really appreciate about trees is one, they take a long time to grow, but that's a plus in some respects. Unlike wheat, you whack it in and you harvest it yeah, 12 months later, but you have to. Um, you don't have any window of opportunity. You do it when it's ready to harvest or you lose the entire crop. Trees, once they get above eight to 10 years old, you can start to get products out of them and your products you'll get out of them change as they evolve. So you can aim for different things. If you don't make one market, the chances are you could make a separate market later on. And the other that's the other thing about the the trees themselves is they're so flexible for humans they can do so many things as as seedlings they can they can already start to sort of change your erosion mitigation properties on your farm as they grow up they can change your your wind profiles to stop dust to make it more pleasant for any grazing animals further on you get different products up to the very high quality products Now at Soils for Life, we're all about restoring soil health to landscapes. So what role do trees play in improving soil health? You can grow trees who actually improve the soil condition from their roots. The coarse roots go deep and go far, and they sort of stabilise the tree but access the water. And then the fine roots have a high turnover, and they're the things that actually adds the carbon into the soil. And then there's a whole bunch of the microbiota that lives around those fine roots. So you can pick different species to get different root environments to do different things to your soil. So if, if you're clay-based, you'll have one type. And if you're sedimentary, you might go for a different type to do different things. So all that's part of your management. Do you, do you plant them thickly, so lots of trees in a line? Or do you open them up so that they have more room to grow, but there's more space between them? So this kind of approach can work really well for farmers, but how does it fit in with the demand for forest products? Well, Peter Kanowski says Australia's demand for timber products is growing and our supply is dwindling. Australia's got a strong domestic market for solid wood, particularly construction, not large on a global scale, but Australia's run a trade deficit in forest products of something like $2 billion a year ever since I've been a forestry student. One of the reasons for that is that as a nation, we're an exporter of essentially unprocessed forest products in the form of round wood or wood chips. 
and we're an importer of processed forest products, particularly pulp and paper, perhaps some other sorts of engineered products as well. The barrier to that is largely in processing capacity and in resource supply. So after the bushfires of 2019-2020, when we lost significant area of plantation forest in New South Wales, as well as some other areas elsewhere, in the longer run, being able to produce forest products of different sorts at a competitive price is obviously the key to longer term market share. But we're going to be helped in that by the rising global price of forest products. I guess I'm seeing a vision in which there are changes in the landscape and there are changes in the nature of the value chains that draw from those landscapes so that our economy is one that incorporates a wider range of you know, forest products that we really add value to from different parts of this more integrated landscape. So there is an opportunity for private landholders to grow more trees to meet at least some of this demand. The competing demands on the public estate mean that we're getting less and less from them. So the demand is moving to the private estate. And at this stage, the private estate as a whole, we don't quite know what's in the private estate. And the individual owners don't quite know what's on their private estate. And they don't quite know what to do with it. So to many places, you know, the sawmills will go out and and talk to a farmer and say, I reckon you've got a thousand cubes out there somewhere. Can I have it? Give you a couple of bucks for it. And the farmer doesn't know if that's a good price or a bad price. So we need that improved. So information services would be a lot better. But also, if the extension services could go out and say, well, you should expect the industry to be coming to you. This is what you should be looking at. And if you do these things, you'll get a better price for it but also you might get some long-term price for it we don't want you to knock out all that country over the next year and then you've just ended up with clear fell eroding rotting place talk about having a sustained yield for yourself you don't have to do it every year but talk about having every five or ten years come back for another harvest I remember in one of my other projects, they're trying to work out when, when these things are best harvested. And then we asked the landowners what their plans were. And then some of the third world countries, their only plan was to harvest when their daughters were ready to get a dowry. That's how they planned their harvest. Yeah, I'm going to have an income need at this point in time. I will harvest a tree. So they're just standing banks for them. The longer it lasts, the bigger it gets. But I, I know it's a bank there. And because it's my bank, I'll look after it. That's the big advantage, I think, of farms, is they don't need the economies of scale. Farmers can actually go for much more niche. Now, there is a problem if you go too niche and the niche dries up, then you're in trouble. So again, you've got to have that bit of a diversity in there. So how does Chris think of the relative benefits of mixed native forest versus plantation-style forests on farms? I like native forests more because you have so much more diversity in them. So you can have different products, you have different time scales, and they're not as intensive. To make plantations work, you have to be intensive. You have to use fertilizer. You have to have economies of scale. You've got to have tractors moving them over them regularly. Now, all that intensity is energy intensive, it's resource intensive, and it only works because you can focus on a high value product. So I don't like plantations unless you've got a really particular niche you have to to meet. So if you're growing plantations because you've got a pulp mill that's there and you want this to provide the pulp mill or even a biofuel mill that you need this to do it. Okay, that's a specific case. 
But more generally, I think the native forests are so much better because you can lightly touch a part of the forest every year and then not come back to that part again for 100 years. And that light management over an extensive area, I think, is much more favourable than intensive management every year. Of course, all of this has to make financial sense. So how does it stack up for farmers like Rowan who've taken this approach? We're now at the point where we have a perpetual forest as long as I keep planting. We planted trees back in 1987 and every year since then we've planted trees and we're only on 100 acres and I've only planted probably half of it to different configurations of plantings for conservation, shelter, aesthetics, fire protection and all those purposes. We will be able to harvest 50 high quality logs per year, you know, maybe get a good ongoing income in some way from that. But is that diversification? A better term would be I've built capital value. This property has gone from just a grazing property to a property now which has grazing and timber. So I I call it building capital. And farmers, I think, appreciate that because the capital value of their land is their strongest asset. It's what they pass on to the future generations. We plant probably more than people would normally do because I'm interested in education and research on the property as well. But now we're actually starting to harvest trees. Initially, it was just the eucalypts and the pines. Now we're starting to harvest redwoods and poplars and cherry and a whole range of specialty timbers. And although the production volumes are small, because of the management that we undertook, the only additional cost is to manage those trees to improve the quality. We're able to harvest with farm-scale tractor equipment, a logging winch on the back of a tractor, using a chainsaw, manually harvest, and mill that timber up. And from a eucalypt or a pine log, I've worked out that if I've got a market we're building at the moment for the timber, or if I want to sell that timber, I could go and fell a tree from our plantings, and in doing so, drive the forest growth because it's effectively giving space to the other trees. I could harvest that tree, mill it up, and stack it ready for drying in less than a day and then pull it out of the kiln and produce at least $800 to $1,000 worth of timber for a day's work. I just love this story so much. Some of the other stories we've heard from all sorts of different regenerative farmers about how taking a regenerative approach to farming, one that doesn't just focus on one thing but focuses on diversity and diversification provides not just environmental benefits but improves the financial resilience of the enterprise and this is such a perfect example of that. So what we really need to understand is what's holding farmers back from taking this approach. There's a plethora of issues that stop people. The rules around the NCAS mapping is one. Current soil carbon methodology excludes country that can have forest or forest potential. You can't stack, you can't overlay carbon projects, even though if there's a very legitimate claim, even under the additionality rules, that that is an outcome. There's the likes of regulation in Queensland, so we've got the reef regulations, which is moving the bar higher and making it harder for um, people to prove additionality, so that's a bit of a problem. Things like the Nature Conservation Act, which once again what it does, it raises the, the minimum standard so it creates problems in the additionality sector, but landholders are pretty worried of things like you would have seen in New South Wales, the koala mapping, well that's in Queensland as well. So people are very adverse to take on risk because what happens is if you take on a project and you identify 
for argument's sake, that's good koala habitat. You run your project for it for 20 years, and then you always you end up at the end of it is more regulated vegetation, and then that then becomes you know a risk to your property from the bank's point of view. And the problem is the legislation keeps changing, like what what we need to do and don't need to do it. Oh, like the VMA's changed 21 times in 20 years. So it's a full-time job keeping up with regulations. The other problem is that a lot of landholders don't like how Pacific projects are very centralised around a project area. They don't take a consideration the whole property point of view. So you might have one area that you do a fantastic job on, but you know the rest of your property is doing even better, but you're not even counting that. It's producing a very good result in a very small area, but the policy doesn't encourage broad-scale landscape change. So that's where it becomes effective because if you've got broad scale, then you increase connectivity. Connectivity in natural environments has been proven a million times to be one of the best outcomes. If biodiversity can flow and move between certain environments, that's probably one of the most important things. But the current way, the regulations, it's very hard for people to have the confidence to take on those sorts of risks. And when you have the conversation with your bank and your financial institutions, they'll point that out to you straight away. James Henderson isn't the only one who's frustrated. Rowan Reed also points out how legislation can discourage farmers from pursuing farm forestry for both conservation and production. There's a clear distinction there between private native forest and planting new ones. Unfortunately, the private native forest area is complicated by so many rules and regulations that differ in every state. And I think as your landholder might have referred to, those laws change over time. And they carry a lot of what you might call sovereign risk. You might spend years improving the quality of your native forest, only to find that a new law comes in and says you can't touch it. And that is the history, really. And that's led to a lot of degradation of private native forest. When farmers are allowed to, or even if they're not allowed to, they've gone in what we call high-graded. They've taken the best quality timber out. And that has happened over 100 years on many areas. And that means the current state of the forest is often pretty low quality for timber because they've retained all the dominant trees that aren't particularly good because of their species or their form. And they've suppressed the regrowth or they've affected the nature of the regrowth. And many of these forests need quite a deal of investment to upgrade them. And that investment may actually not even break even. It might be involved in uh, selectively removing, encouraging natural regeneration to enhance the forest. And it's pretty rational that farmers will say, well, why bother doing that, improving the quality if I'm not guaranteed that I'll be able to get access to that forest in the future. On the planting side, there's a huge opportunity. But I would acknowledge that farmers still have concerns about sovereign risk. For example, if I plant trees that are native to the area, what assurity have I got if those trees actually are providing wildlife habitat or conservation benefits, that there won't be some rule that comes in later on to protect that. So we've found farmers are actually saying, I don't want to plant a species in Victoria that's native to Victoria. I'll plant a New South Wales species because that is proof that I planted it in effect. And we encourage them to photograph their their plantings. I don't think registering them with government changes the confidence rules. And many people will plant exotic species on the assumption that they will never be protected in some way. So those sovereign risks are there. But underlying that, I think there's enormous opportunities because almost every farm I've visited over 35 years around Australia and even overseas, there is a potential for some tree planting or improve management of that the trees that are actually there to improve 
the short-term values, the agricultural production, even the aesthetics, control land degradation, uh, encourage wildlife back on, all values that many farmers would see as a legitimate purpose. So I think a lot of forestry programs in the past have promoted timber as the, the sole objective or the primary objective. And for farmers, common sense would say, well, it should be third or fourth down the list. And then you can start looking at, well, if I plant trees for that purpose, maybe I should start looking at uh, some timber markets or some flowers or, or some tree seed or, or something else. Right down the end of the line will be environmental services. And if someone offers you money for environmental services, take it. But on, uh, for innovative farmers doing things which are quite different, uh, they're unlikely to be rewarded for the environmental services because you know, by acknowledging climate change, they're planting species not indigenous to the area. How long is it going to take the conservation funders to recognise that planting a New South Wales species in Victoria or a Queensland species in New South Wales is actually contributing to conservation of those or, or the resilience of those forests? You, you're not going to get a grant or support to do that now uh, because it takes so long for these systems to catch up and to acknowledge that the innovators are actually too far out in front of the market. And as with carbon markets, timber markets should be seen as an additional benefit to all those core ecosystem services that trees provide. But as Rowan Reid points out, if you're doing production forestry, then it's hard to access carbon money. I'm pleased that some farmers are getting benefit, whether through their native forest on their property or even through some planted trees. But 99.9% .9 of farmers who plant trees are unable to participate in the current carbon markets. Or if they do, the cost of doing so in terms of auditing or the liability associated with locking that land up for a period of time, even to the next generation, means that um, they won't do it. Uh, which is a shame because their trees are locking up carbon. Every tree locks up carbon from one in an urban backyard to a thousand hectare farm. We really need to find a way to acknowledge thank and reward every person who's growing a forest where there wasn't a forest before. I mean, I, I plant thousands of trees. I cut them down, lock them up in buildings and furniture. They're clearly doing good things for the environment in terms of carbon, but I've got no way to actually get rewarded for that. So there's a lot of work to be done in the carbon market. I think uh, there's too much politicians and advocates seem to suggest it's all hunky-dory and farmers are benefiting. I think a lot of urban people would be surprised that uh, almost no farmers who plant trees on their farms for the reasons that they want at a scale that works for a family are getting any carbon money at all. And then we come to biodiversity credits. Rowan's concerned that a very narrow view and scope of what biodiversity looks like will limit how many trees farmers might plant. Some of the biodiversity discussion is interesting because there's a lot of work being done on what is the ideal habitat on your farm. So you might say, well, a monoculture plantation of exotic trees, that's very low, but a locally indigenous, diverse, untouched little patch of regeneration is much better. But at the landscape level, where a lot of biodiversity actually occurs across a landscape, it is not the quality of the individual patch that's important. It is how those patches or different types of vegetation interact. Some aspects of plantings are supporting biodiversity by controlling salinity or changing soil erosion or by sheltering or reducing the fire hazard of those areas that are considered pristine. 
So rather than say we are going to support people who plant local indigenous species on their land in a small patch and we're not going to support other activities, we need to find a way to look at the whole landscape. And the best way to do that is to have a proxy for the quality of the forest or the landscape. And that might be through bird surveys or we have hundreds of sugar gliders, for example, to the point that they're becoming a little bit of a pest. But we don't have one indigenous style planting on the farm. We have many bird species, more than you find in the patch of native forest up the road because of the diversity of plantings we've got, including the exotics, but more the way that they're all managed at different age classes and different patches integrated with pasture, some areas locked up, some areas not. And that diversity, I think, underpins biodiversity. So I'm not very confident that given the interest groups that are likely to be involved in the development of a biodiversity payment plan, that they're actually going to acknowledge that you can do lots of things to enhance biodiversity, you can do lots of things to achieve carbon in the landscape, because ultimately they're going to support the answers that they want to support. And that's where we have this disjunct between the payment for environmental services and what landholders actually want to do on their landscape, which achieves landscape level change. So I've been involved in the discussion and I was thinking back to when market-based instruments was first being explored by governments in Canberra. I think it was during the 90s. I was involved in discussions then. It was promising, but it only works if it's a true market. It actually delivers on real outcomes, not just thinking that native is always best for these outcomes. And it's something that you can generate an income from, which is an ongoing return rather than a one-off payment for a short period of time. And because governments are short-term, because projects are short-term, the market-based instrument programs are also short-term. And that's where some of these schemes worry me. There seems to be an international trend now of politicians wanting to boast about how many trees they're going to plant. There might be a billion trees in New Zealand. I think England's got a goal of doing this. Ethiopia said they planted three million trees in a day. Well, are those three million trees alive? Did they stop the kid with the goat going out, trying to find feed, destroying that planting? It's no good planting trees if they're not wanted and owned by the people who control that landscape. What the government keeps doing is responding to stakeholder lobby groups that say, oh, we need more pine trees in the ground because we've got a shortage of, of pine timber at the moment. Yes, we have a shortage of pine timber at the moment, but that is no indication of what the market's going to be like in 30 years' time. The investors are not going to carry that risk, so they ask government to carry the risk. Well, the problem with that is it's just solely focused on the timber. If those trees were providing other benefits, you would find landholders willing to find other partners or invest in those trees. Peter shares Rowan's concerns and agrees that the goal itself isn't the problem. We need more trees in our landscape. It's the who, where and why that matters. There's nothing wrong with having a goal of planting a billion more plantation trees as part of the resource base for the value-adding forest products industries that we currently have based on softwood plantations. So, you know, that in itself is not an unworthy goal. I think the issue is that that's as far as the ambition goes at the moment. You know, globally, we've got a very strong movement for forest and landscape restoration. We've got the UN Decade of Ecosystem Restoration 
and we've got that playing out in many countries in their commitments to plant a billion trees or whatever. My argument would be that the current federal government goal around 400,000 hectares of plantation forests is a worthy goal but only in the context of a broader goal that's more ambitious across the landscape in general and that's where I think we need to be focusing our efforts. So what are the solutions to creating a more whole-of-landscape approach? James Henderson, who is the chair of AgForce Young Producers Council, suggests AgCare. The AgCare platform was born out of AgForce Landscape Management Committee as a way to help deal with ongoing regulation changes and provide broad-scale landscape change and you know, a way of incentivising landholders and taking a much more whole-of-property approach because that's what landholders want to do. They don't want to have a conversation about the back paddock. They want to talk about their whole business and you've got to include the production and financial metrics because we're all businesses. The AgCare model is a sustainable farm plan, 15-year plan that you know maps out where you are and where you want to go. We use a carbon account model so we work out how much you're sequestering in your farm and how much you're admitting. It gives you a balance sheet which is very important. You, you need to know what you produce and what you sequester and then we couple that with a natural capital survey what actions are you undertaking and then we measure your natural assets on farm and we put it all together and we produce a score from there that's a tool like a baseline entry level that you can essentially you know take to your bank to you know de-risk your loans you can you know look for carbon opportunities you can look for biodiversity opportunities the idea is that you'll get massive broad scale landscape change in our trial phase, we got 580,000 hectares under our trial. So to put it out of perspective, there's hardly a program that's been run by the government or a private industry that's covered that much in, in full scale. And we're still using existing science. It's all stuff done by Accounting for Nature, by Richard Thackaway, by Condition School from the Queensland Herbarium. We're using NCAS mapping. We use all existing science. We plug it together in a framework that makes it usable and gets a, a much better, broader scale outcome. James has also been looking into the specifics around one of the carbon projects on his property involving regulated vegetation. Yeah, you want producers to do carbon projects, you want them to engage in environmental markets. But then by having this here, by rejourning this forest, at the end of my project I'm actually putting it at significant risk from other green regulation. So if you're a producer, why would you undertake a project if you thought that at the end of that project you're not going to get your land back, you're not going to get your rights to your timber, you're simply going to basically end up with more regulated vegetation than when you started. So the importance of security of tenure, the importance of being able to make long-term decisions, you know, 30, 30 plus years, because that's how long it takes in this game. Most people are in the ag industry for 30 odd years. That's about a generation. It's vitally important that, you know, people can make decisions and know that in 30 years time, it's not going to have an adverse impact. And I think it gets a bit lost in translation quite often. The methodology prohibits James from actively managing the trees and he's trying to address the limitations by putting forward a new methodology. Did some research and put some numbers behind it and we sort of worked out that, yeah, theoretically there would be space there to create an accu product in regulated vegetation. Currently there is no way to, to do that and it would be sort of a new methodology. It addressed a whole heap of issues, which I actually thought it was a, a fantastic idea and a great policy. Uh, one was it, it addressed the issue of the NCAS modelling. So it wasn't about whether it was going to be knocked down or whether it was going to be left standing. It was about maximising growth. So the forest stayed there and then it, it got 
you know you maximize growth so you can do it in category x or, or regulated vegetation so unregulated or regulated vegetation it was pretty dependent on fire it had a lot of really good biodiversity outcomes you know fire mitigation you know so particularly with the the areas you would do it are the areas that get you know that's where the catastrophic fires occur so there was a lot of fire metrics in there that you could sort of build around it it had great opportunity for um Indigenous employment for native native title ramifications were huge, you know, like currently if, if you're an uh, Indigenous group, your only real opportunity is with savannah burning, which is only in the 1,000 mil rainfall zone, so it just excludes, you know, 90% of Australia, you know, and it also created a system where you had ongoing high-quality hardwood logs going into the Queensland um, system, so the Queensland economy. And I think we roughly worked out it was going to produce about $8 billion over 25 years for a few simple policy changes and a, you know, a bit of money to develop a methodology. But uh, we didn't get a lot of support from the regulator or, or the Queensland government. Yeah, it was a bit disappointing, really. But um, lesson learned, don't write a policy unless anyone wants to hear it. <laughs> Environmental markets are rapidly developing and changing. And a big part of the reason for this podcast is to bring ideas like James's to light so they can inform new policy developments. One of these is the federal government's new National Farm Forestry Strategy, which is currently under development. Peter Kanowski sees plenty of scope to improve the policy settings for farm forestry. We've got researchers and practitioners in Australia to look in a more sophisticated way at how land uses might be balanced in particular catchments to get the sort of best outcome for the amount of water available. One of the constraints is that we got a very property rights focused view of how we manage landscapes. But to solve some of these issues, we need to cooperate across property boundaries and I think we need some new governance models to help us do that. And we might think about the social sustainability inherent in any land use, the acknowledgement of traditional owners, the respect for special places, the broader social licence of land use, which we've seen transgressed in Australia in different ways. But what we've lost over the last 20 years or so in particular is a focus on some sort of uh, integration between agricultural production systems and landscape restoration and forest management for production. We've got a big, it's like a donut where we've got a big missing middle in that part of the policy landscape. And so I think having a national conversation about what we're expecting in that middle and then putting in place policy settings to enable that where we need to go next. For Chris Brack, a big policy gap is a lack of support for farmers. The farmers, you know, I'm not quite sure what the stats are these days, but it was a really binomial distribution. We have the old codgers who've been there forever and then the new generation coming out. And so they have different viewpoints of what's happening, but neither of them have the complete viewpoint. I always get amused at other people's amusement. They think, oh, the old, you know, the 70-year-old farmer is... Well, seventy year farmer is now driving a two million dollar tractor with GPS, and he has got a you know his iPad here telling him, uh, you know the the lidar tells him my slope is on the soil here, and and you know, they're they're not the old fashioned farmers we talk about. These guys know their land; they know how to do what they've been doing before very well, but they don't know what else they can do. 
And that's the issue. Whereas the new farmers know what else they can do, but they don't know how to do it very well at all, I think. <laughs> so that's our, our dichotomy. And either way, we need those experts to sit in the middle to know what is practical and feasible and also know what's happened and what changes have occurred over the last three decades. The really big thing that the Indigenous culture had that we don't is they knew what every hectare looked like because they'd been there. They know what's going on. We're, we don't have that capability anymore. Our land managers, the people who manage the state forests, you have one or two foresters responsible for you know 100,000 hectares. They fly over it, look down out of a plane. Okay, yeah, there's trees down there, we're going well. Whereas you lived on site uh, in the Aboriginal cultures, you walk through it, you know what it was. You also knew the history because you were told stories about it and you knew how these trees evolved and you knew that tree. That's what we need to get back to, that really site-specific knowledge for so much more. And to do that, we need humans out in the forest. And it's not just a continuity of knowledge that's been lost, it's also integrated knowledge of both forestry and agricultural advice that needs a resurgence. Chris Brack believes we need to support more landscape-focused extension services. Who are the extension services? these days. I mean, I used to work for the Public Service New South Wales in the 80s, and they ran their own extension services. In fact, most of the the public forests did run their own extension services. And so they worked well with farmers. The soil people had their own extension services. And in the country offices, our extension services often used to share the building. So the two people would go out and talk to farmers about their soil and drainage and talking about the use of trees and what have you and you know whether or not that was worthwhile and they were locally based and that's that's all gone because the governments have decided that's not their their role anymore. So the extension services don't have that integrated value and they don't have the overarching view of trying to make the whole region work through integrating soil management and tree management and cattle numbers and sheep numbers and wheat crops and what have you. You need, you need all that together. What kind of support would farmers need to help them invest in farm forestry? Rowan Reed says empowering farmers is the key. I sort of work at two levels. Locally, there's 200 farmers involved in our agroforestry network. So we do a lot of work helping them design and manage the forest that they want for the reasons they want. And uh, nationally, I'm involved in farmer education programs through the Australian Agroforestry Foundation, including the Australian Master Tree Grower Program that we've run all around Australia in every state and territory. And that's what we've been doing just as a community. We get government money. Uh, We don't use it to promote tree growing. We don't use it to fund grants for trees or fences. We use our government money. And our little land care group, we've had over $3 million over the last 25 years, We've used all that money to pay farmers to talk to farmers. It sounds ridiculous. We train and then we pay mentors who are good tree growers to go and work with, over time, other landholders who are interested in tree growing. And the farmers who get that mentoring support say, this is fantastic. All I want is someone to come and help me make a decision. I want to be able to know who to contact when something goes wrong or I need to start the management the next step. You know, I don't want you to tell me what to plant or give me money for one species and not another or another type of planting. And they want to participate in that journey. So we've got one of the largest land care groups and our members don't get any free trees or any free fences. And that's pretty unusual. And it's because we're focused on building knowledge networks and communication within the group and supporting those decision makings. 
And that's, that's what I think governments should do across the country. Support farmers to make good decisions about their land management. On the basic, my basic assumption, if a farmer makes a good decision about what they want their farm to look like, particularly in 20 or 30 years, in almost all cases, it will involve some trees. And most farmers know that. Not many farmers are in the position, oh, I want to run this property into the ground and then sell it and walk away. You know, they, they keep telling us we want to pass it on in a better state to the to children, more risk-free, more diverse, higher capital value. And that's the starting point. And if government support that decision-making, they will get all the trees they want. They will get all the carbon they want and they won't even have to pay for it directly through some environmental service scheme. They will notice the landscape change and they hadn't had to pay for a single tree. What's happened in our area where we haven't funded free trees is our nurseries are growing a wider diversity of species and they have more customers, individual customers, than before when they only planted species that the Catchment Authority or Greening Australia wanted at scale. And I think we've got a more sustainable model in the future. And socially, what works for one farmer is not going to work for the one next door. So we've got to get away from this recipe mentality and avoid research that supports recipes to one that celebrates and informs decision making. So our other line is the diversity of forests just re should reflect the diversity of people who are in, it, in the landscape and the values that they want. And that could be really exciting. If you don't know where you're going, it's really hard to know which route to take. Peter Kanowski believes that we need to have an overarching national vision. The long-term goal surely needs to be a healthy landscape and a healthy economy. So it's, it's finding a way at the national level and then at the state level and regional level within states to have those conversations and have national and state policies more aligned to support outcomes that deliver a range of benefits from landscape management, not benefits that are very weighted towards just agricultural production or just forest production or just conservation. All of them have got to operate within the context of a changing climate and dynamic global markets. You know, we now have a national forest policy statement that is 30 years old next year. And whilst much of what's in that policy statement is reasonably general and still reasonably relevant. You know, as a nation, we might say, well, it's time to revisit that, time to think about how we re-articulate the goals nationally for what we want from our landscapes and the forests within them, how we recognise the different interests in those, including the interests of First Nations peoples and farmers, as well as those in the forestry sector, in the conservation movement, the broader community that draws on forest goods and services in many ways. Invest some time and resources in a national conversation that helps us agree on those goals and then some process that helps us interpret them in different parts of the country where we need to interpret them differently because of the different environmental and climatic conditions, the different patterns of land use. And I guess in our national political life as a nation, we're sort of moving more towards short time horizons and we are to taking a longer view. And, you know, as a forestry graduate of the ANU, you, you know, Susanna, that the motto over the door of the original Australian Forestry School there at Yarralumna is 
we care for the future. And that motto speaks to the necessity for those who manage forests to have a long-term view because the decisions that we make about managing forests play out over decades to centuries. But we haven't really recognised that, I don't think, in our political processes that make decisions about forests. Even if we do come up with a national trees plan, a lot is going to come down to public perception. The general public often see forestry as a deforestation issue rather than as an incentive to reforest the country. It is hard to see how to move legislation to support trees for both conservation and production when forestry is such an emotive issue. Forests are definitely an emotive issue. I do a lot of work on the urban forests and I don't think any Canberrian is ambivalent about trees in Canberra, particularly eucalypts and the exotics. And they either love one and hate the other or vice versa. So everyone has an opinion and it's the same with the forest. Everyone has an opinion and most of them have an opinion that's probably not based on fact. It's, it's even the case where you just go outside and, you know, you can stand under a eucalypt tree and people will have an opinion about it and then you can tell them all the facts about the eucalypt tree and they'll, oh, I didn't realise they did that. Oh, I didn't realise that was happening. Oh, OK, maybe I should have a different one. Same with the, the forest out there but it's, it's even harder to stand in the forest and say, okay, well, this is this forest. You've got an opinion, fine. Let's put some facts and some science around that opinion. Education can play a role in debunking myths and building people's understanding and awareness of the benefits of well-managed private forests. Yes, and although many farmers are frustrated with the current legislation, those like James and Rowan are helping to shift thinking by showing that forests can be managed for multiple benefits. Just about every farm has an opportunity. It's just finding that opportunity. It is such a diverse market and it is emerging. So you mightn't have an opportunity now, but you might have one in five years. So if you understand what your opportunity is and how you can start framing it up and start working towards it, that's what you know. I'd like to see more people understand and just, just having a look to see what is there. Every farm's got some potential, it's just recognising what it is. Wow, I learnt so much in that episode. Let's hear from Liz Clark, Soils for Life CEO, to hear her main takeaways. Hi Liz. Hey Ellie. There's so many really spectacular messages in there. James says something about every farm has potential. We just need to recognise it. So understanding the potential of that farm and adapting a management and a use of that land according to its potential. Rather than just saying, I'm a cattle farmer or I'm a tree farmer, saying, I'm a farmer of soil and landscape and this is what my landscape needs. Absolutely. And there were lots of ideas in the episode about how we can help farmers make that shift. There's an important message in there that, yes, we need extension services, but we don't want the kind of extension services we had before. What we want instead is a a more effective way to share knowledge across industries and commodities to include landscape management, to include soil management. No one person can provide all of that which is why we need that collective approach to knowledge sharing. Really importantly, the peer-to-peer knowledge sharing, which is absolutely the focus of what we do at Source for Life. So Liz, where do you think we start? 
So what we really need and what I'm really hoping for, particularly given we're in the UN Global Decade of Ecosystem Restoration, is a vision for landscape management that includes forestry, that includes agriculture, that includes multiple adaptive use of land to rebuild our landscapes, to rebuild the function of our soils. This is what we really need in the policy space. This podcast has been produced by the Grow Love Project in collaboration with Soils for Life and is supported through funding from the Australian Government's National Land Care Program. The episode was mixed and edited by Edgar Sgreste and we'd like to thank all our guests for their time and insights. For more information, check out the links in the show notes, sign up to the Soils for Life newsletter and be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Thanks so much for listening.